kind of weird with these uh, microphone deals up here, you know. Feels like teleprompters or something, you know. Good thing I don't wander too much, right? Last week, I spoke briefly with you about the, the world of evangelicalism. Like a fog rolling in, snuffing out the light. In particular, we spoke some about the doctrine of sola fide and, and how that doctrine is increasingly confused among people and coming under direct and outright attack. With regard to that issue, one pastor wrote the following. Let me read it to you. He said, The church history since the Reformation reveals wave after wave of attacks against the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. The indisputable fact is that in eras when this doctrine has been upheld and preached with conviction, the church has flourished and grown. Every significant revival since the 16th century has been marked by a strong emphasis on this doctrine. Every period of decline and apostasy begins with an attack on this doctrine. And it is under attack today like never before. I believe that man is absolutely right on the money. Evangelicalism is in the process of trading its birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. And in the process, devastating results are rolling through the church of Jesus Christ. Next week, I'm going to take some time and outline some of those recent inroads, the dangers of them. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I will do that next week. But in the meantime, just believe me, please. The truth is under attack. Serious attack. And if we lose this, we have lost the Gospel. It is here. Open your Bibles up, please, to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Page 1128 in a pew Bible, if that's what you're using this morning. We're calling this multi-part series, Sola Fide, that is, faith alone. Faith alone. We're on the second of what will be several messages Beginning last week in verse 27, and they will carry all the way through chapter 4 because it's really one big unit of thought. Can't get it all done in one time, so we'll have to break it down. But it is one big unit of thought. As we're working through this text together, we're going to note five contrasts. Five contrasts that draw out the nature and implications of faith as the sole means of justification. So that we can understand more clearly how it is a person is made right before their Creator. Last week, and I've given you a handout this week as we do every week, and if you're following along on that handout, you'll note these five 
contrast. Last week we looked at the first one, faith contrasted with law-keeping. That was verses 27 through 31 of chapter 3. This week we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Faith contrasted with works. Faith contrasted with works. Let me go ahead and read the text for you here and then we'll jump in. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or literally will not reckon. Paul, in chapter 4 of the book of Romans, refers us back to the book of Genesis, and in particular chapter 15 and verse 6, and brings forward the life of the great patriarch Abraham and this most significant event in Abraham's life. And all of chapter 4 really is Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. If you ever wondered what Paul would, what his uh, exposition of a text would look like, here it is in front of you. Chapter 4 of Romans is an exposition of Genesis 15 and verse 6. And so Paul is going to examine this verse from many different angles and draw out of it its truth and implications with regard to sola fide. Now, on your handout, I've said that I want to look first with you at the case of Abraham. And indeed, that's what we're going to do. Abraham is, is, the, um, is the character that's in this whole chapter. He flows through this. The life of Abraham is very much woven into this chapter. And Abraham was revered by the Jewish people. He was considered by them to be the primary example of justification by works. If anybody could be right before God based on their own good effort, their own meritorious life, it was Father Abraham. So according to prevailing Jewish thinking of that day, the great patriarch Abraham had earned his way into God's good favor. It was thought that he was chosen to be the ancestor of the race because he was considered so righteous in the sight of God. Now, you remember in the book of Genesis, you know, it, it opens there with the, with the creation, but it moves rapidly in the narrative through those first 11 chapters of human history. And then it comes to chapter 12 and the introduction of Abraham and the breaks are applied and then we come to a screeching halt and we begin to follow this man's life. Abraham, however you might cut it, is the most significant figure of the Old Testament. It does revolve around him. And so the Jews saw him as the great patriarch, the originator of the Jewish nation, the man who was the friend of God. But they misunderstood his relationship with God. 
For example, here are some quotes that rabbis were writing in and around this time with regard to Abraham. Quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Another quote, Abraham did not sin against thee. Close quote. Or one more for you. Quote, no one has been found like him in glory. Close quote. Abraham was the father of the nation, and he was the one whom they looked to as the man who exemplified a holy, righteous life that would endear him into the presence of his own Creator. So by Paul bringing up the case of Abraham here in chapter 4, what he is doing is he is launching a frontal assault on the strongest position of the Jewish people. This is an absolute attack on the citadel of legalistic Judaism of Paul's day. If anyone could be justified by works, it would be Abraham. So if God can demonstrate that Abraham was not just, or Paul could justify that Abraham was not, could, that came out better. If, if Paul could demonstrate, that's the word we're looking for, that Abraham was not justified by works, then he will have established his case of sola fide. And so that's what he's going to do. Because if you can overturn the, the legend that had built up around Abraham, then you could demonstrate that everyone comes before God in the same way. If Abraham comes not on the basis of works, but faith alone, then everyone else has to come the same way. So that's what Paul's going to do. This is his apologetic. So he begins here in verse 1, chapter 4, with a rhetorical question. Remember I told you last time, this is a diatribe section. That means it's, it's a series of questions and answers that, that Paul's imaginary opponents were bringing against his gospel. And so he would be, formulate the questions that were most commonly asked of him, and then he would respond to them. And so he asked this rhetorical question with regard to Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What he's asking his readers to do is contemplate Abraham's life. Regardless of what you may have thought you knew about Abraham, Paul is asking you to again think about Abraham's life. What is it that Abraham discovered with regard to justification? What was his experience? That's the question he's asking. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Paul is going to momentarily grant to his opponent here the possibility that Abraham might have been justified by works and then say, where does it lead? It leads to boasting. It leads to boasting. But what's God's viewpoint? What is God's viewpoint with regard to that boasting? When you consider God's viewpoint there at the end of the verse, there is no possibility of boasting, right? Not before God. So Paul closes off the argument very quickly. He doesn't want to go down that track of boasting. He's already said there is no room for boasting, not even with Abraham. Abraham cannot boast. Why? The answer lies in verse 3. Abraham's experience is laid out for us in Scripture, verse 3. But what does the Scripture say? Now this is a, such an important verse this text, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, 
occurs early in the book of Genesis. I guess I'm stating the obvious there, but it does occur early in the book. And it's an extremely important verse because it is the first mention of the word believe in the Old Testament. It comes here. But it's more than significant just on that fact alone. It's the fact that believing is connected here in the text with the means of attaining righteousness. It is put together there at this very early place within the Old Testament Scripture, almost right out of the gate, if you will, believing and righteousness connected together. Very early in the biblical record, we are told explicitly the means of attaining righteousness before our Creator. It is given to us. We are told how to be made right. Genesis 15, verse 6. Now, lest you think that I'm reading more into that than I should, look over at verses 23 and 24 of this chapter where Paul addresses the very same thing. And he says in verse 23, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Paul's saying that this was written not just for Abraham's sake, but for all of our sakes, because we can see in the life of Abraham the true and only means of attaining righteousness before our Creator. Now, a little bit of background here, just to remind you. In Genesis 15, Abraham had already left his home in Ur of the Chaldees about ten years before. He had gone through a circuitous route and he had arrived now down in Canaan. And he'd been wandering in Canaan. There, earlier, God had given him a promise in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic promise and covenant. And we're not going to take the time to go there. But Abraham was now continuing to wander in the land and had been wandering for a decade. And yet, during that time, he had yet to have a son. He He had not produced an heir. And so he reminds God in Genesis 15 of that very fact. He says that that God, I don't have a son. How can the promises come true to me when I don't have a son? God reaffirms his promise to Abraham here in Genesis 15 and tells him again, you will be a father of a great nation. Now you've got to remember, this is an old man. He's 85 years old. He's been wandering for a long time. The promise has been given. It is yet to come true. And God just reaffirms the promise to him and says, I will make you a father of a great nation. And then God takes him outside into the night sky to illustrate his promise. And he says, Abraham, look up. Look up into the night sky. See the stars and count them. Go ahead and count them, Abraham. Because your descendants are going to be as numerous as the lights in the night sky. And it's at that moment, the text says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What does that mean? What it means is that Abraham accepted the promise of God. He was relying upon God to fulfill his word, his promise to him. In the simplicity of faith, he he clung to what God had promised. And God said that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
The word reckoned, logizomai in the Greek, the verb, it, it all through this text, ten times that word appears in this chapter, chapter four. It is all over the place. It's huge. It dominates. And the word means, among other things, to consider or to count or to credit or to place in one's account. Those are equivalent meanings. And at least here in this context, it's a a term of commerce. It's a term of commerce. But it can be illustrated back in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 31. So I'm going to take the time and go ahead and turn you there because this word is so huge, we need to get a feel for it. So in Genesis 31, we'll give you a biblical illustration and then I'll give you one I made up. Give you the biblical one first because that one's accurate and then decide what you want to do with the one I made up. Genesis 31, verse 15. Here we have the the account of uh, Rachel and Leah, the daughters of Laban. And um, uh, Jacob is about ready to take his wives away from his father-in-law, Laban. And he's speaking to them and saying, hey, we've got to get out of here. Okay. And uh, he's trying to convince the daughters to go with him. And he doesn't have to work too hard at it because uh, they're not all that inclined to stay around with dad anymore anyway. But they say in verse 15, and this is the key, it says, Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? What does that mean? What they're saying is, has not our father considered his own flesh and blood daughters as if they were foreigners, as if they're not his daughters at all? And that illustrates this word reckon. That is that he had considered them to be something that they were not. He had reckoned it of them. Take that and keep it in your mind and turn back to Romans 4. So here in Romans 4, verse 3, when the Scripture says that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, what it, what it means is it was considered to him to be righteousness. Not that his faith was in and of itself righteousness. It was considered by God to be something that it was not. When Abraham believed God, God credited to Abraham's account a righteousness that did not belong to Abraham. All right, here's my illustration. See what you think on this one. I did real well with the lawn mowing one last week. Okay, that one was a hit. I had several fathers come up to me and say, really? Did you let him off the hook like that? I said, are you kidding me? It's just an illustration. The lawn's still got to get mowed. So, so we're going to try another one here, okay? All right, how many of you have ever drawn your che- overdrawn your checking account? You don't have to raise your hand, okay? It happens, doesn't it? It happens. Well, when it happens, when someone overdraws their bank account, it puts them into a position of bondage or indebtedness to the bank. But if someone were to come along, okay, here's where it gets really fanciful. If someone were to come along who had a million dollars in their bank account and they were to link their bank account to yours, 
such that now when the bank officer looks at your overdrawn checking account, what he sees is the million dollar balance in the linked account. They would reckon it as if it were yours. Okay? You would still be overdrawn, but you, it would be reckoned to you, it would be considered to you that there was a million dollar balance associated with your account. So when God reckons faith as righteousness, it doesn't mean that we have righteousness somehow infused into us, that the million dollars wasn't deposited into our account. It is that the righteousness was imputed or attributed or accounted to be ours. Legally. Reckoned as righteousness. Let me just pause on that thought and take a detour here. Okay? I need to take a detour. An excursus, as you would read in the commentaries. An excursus on Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. That is, that I need, to, I need to deal with something on the text. And I guess this is as good a place as any to do it, so I'm going to do it here. I need to take you over to James chapter 2. Page 1209 if you're using a pew Bible. I need to take you over here to James chapter 2 because James also cites Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. And if you haven't thought of it yet, you'll go home and think of it. So I might as well answer it right now. Okay? Because in the book of James, he refers to Genesis 15:6 in an apparent attempt to support what appears to be the absolutely opposite conclusion of sola fide. Because after citing Genesis 15:6 there down in verse 23, James says verse 24 that you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how is it that Paul says Genesis 15:6 says that it's by faith alone and James says that it's by works? Did they not read each other's work? Is there an error in the Scriptures? Of course not. Does God change His mind? No. No. I mean, the short answer is that the, a verse is brought into two different contexts. That's the way it's reconciled. The context is different. The context of Romans 4 is not the context of James chapter 2. They're using it in two different ways to support two different points. Let me try to just quickly show you what I mean by that. Paul is arguing in Romans 4 that, that, that human effort has no basis for our justification. And he does that by bringing Genesis 15:6 to bear, where by faith, right, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the emphasis is on his faith reckoned as righteousness, the definitive statement that justification is by grace through faith alone. That's Paul's point. In James chapter 2, James is dealing with a different topic. James is dealing with the context of people who said they had faith, but it was not showing up in a changed life. It was those who said they believed, but they lived just like they always had. Thoroughly pagan. And so James points to Abraham's offering of his son as uh, his son Isaac in uh, Genesis 22, he does that back in verse 21 here, right? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Uh, James takes us back to Genesis chapter 22 and, and refers to the public demonstration of the faith that Abraham had in Genesis 15 played out in the public offering of his son. And when he says here that he was justified by works, the word justified means acquitted or vindicated. He was vindicated before the watching world when he obeyed God and offered up his son. The righteousness that he had earlier was put on public display. That's the point James is trying to make. He's saying if you really have been justified by faith, if you have really embraced Christ by faith, then it will show in your life by necessity. It will show. You will be changed. And that brings us, beloved, right into the heart of the Reformation controversy. A controversy that was not settled forever there, but continues to rage around us even to this day. There is a fundamental difference of understanding with regard to the role of good works between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. And that these two texts are always brought to bear on that discussion. Evangelical theology affirms that faith alone is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is imputed or attributed to a sinner and the basis on which they are justified and stand before a holy God. Roman Catholic theology teaches that faith in the sacrament of baptism is the primary means of justification which is then through the sacrament of penance of penance are restored when that justification begins to diminish or slide away through mortal sin. So Roman Catholicism, you can talk to someone steeped in Roman Catholic theology and you can say, you know, we are saved by grace through faith and they will say yes. They will say yes. Because the Roman system is a faith system, but it is not faith alone. It is faith plus the good works of penance as a necessary condition of justification. I might say it this way. Roman Catholics teach that a sinner is justified by believing and doing. Believing and doing. Whereas an evangelical Christian says that a sinner is justified by believing. Which inevitably then leads to doing. The difference between those two positions, where works fall, whether they fall before justification or after, is the difference between heaven and hell. It's not just a minute piece of theology. It is the difference between made right with your Creator and remaining under His condemnation. Back to Romans 4. We're continuing the conversation of commerce, if you like. 
Now to the one who works, verse 4, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Paul is drawing out the implication of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 here, and he's noting something, and that is that a worker gets paid for what they do. It's not a, a matter of grace, okay, translated here in the New American Standard as favor, the word's charis. It's not a matter of grace, it's a matter of a debt. When you work, at the end of the week, the boss owes you the wages you have earned. Isn't that true? It's not a favor that he pays you, and if it is, you're working in the wrong place. Okay? It's an obligation that he has to pay you. But when someone receives money without working, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a favor. And these two means of receiving payment are entirely incompatible. If it is, if it is based on what you've done, what you've earned, okay, then it is a payment of an obligation. If it is received by based on nothing that you have done at all, it is received as a gift, then it is by grace. It can't be both. It's either of grace or is of works. It cannot be both. So, according to the logic of commerce here, in order for Abraham's faith to be reckoned as righteousness, it has to be a gift of grace placed into his account when he exercised faith rather than a wage that he earned. Okay? Maybe at this point, uh, we draw forward the words of the ancient preacher Chrysostom and see what he can help us with on this point. I quote, For a person who had no works to be justified by faith was nothing unlikely. But for a person richly adorned with good deeds, read Abraham, not to be made just from these, but from faith, this is a thing to cause wonder and to set the power of faith in a strong light. Remember, the context here is Abraham for all of this. And what Paul is saying is that if Abraham received righteousness based on what he had done, what he had earned, it would be nothing but a wage. But it was reckoned to him. It came as a gift, as a favor. Now, Paul is going to continue here, beginning in verse 6, and he's going to, he's going to go beyond a simple accounting to reveal an even more profound reality bound up in all of this. And that is that those who are counted as righteous are not basically good people. But they are rather the ungodly. Right? Verse 5 rather. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. This is a strong word, ungodly. It's a very strong term. It, it refers to a person who lives without any regard for God whatsoever. No interest in God. The ungodly. They're not just a sinner, but they are an open, defiant sinner. They are a Romans chapter 1, verse 18 kind of sinner. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's incredible. This gift is not just coming to people who are, you know, maybe they're not working. 
But they are wicked people. People who hate God. This is shocking. This is absolutely shocking. A holy God accepts as righteous, unholy people on the basis of absolutely nothing but faith. God does not require that they clean themselves up at all. As if they could. Only that they come. Only that they come. God doesn't justify hardworking people. God justifies ungodly, non-working people. Case of Abraham. Paul's now going to illustrate a little further for us by introducing the testimony of David. Verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This quote here in verses 7 and 8 is drawn from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 32, along with Psalm 51, are the two psalms David penned after his adulterous and murderous affair with Bathsheba that led to the death of her husband Uriah. These are the psalms he penned. Paul enlists these first two verses and brings them into the text in support of his argument of the case of Abraham. Now, three times, using, I believe, Hebrew parallelism, David in the psalm refers to the evil deeds and three times he tells us what God has done for them or with them, rather, for the man who by faith is reckoned righteousness or reckoned righteous. All right. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Second time, third time. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not reckon. What he's saying is that instead of placing our sin into account against us, God pardons it and covers it over. But how is, that's the question, how is David's reference to the pardon of sin related to Paul's discussion of righteousness by faith alone? It almost seems like there's two different topics now going on. Notice that verse 6 begins with just as. Okay? Paul is enlisting this in support of his argument. These two themes are tied together. Notice that... uh, That Paul says, just as verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Paul's talking about reckoning righteousness apart from works. And then he gives you two verses that are talking about sin being forgiven, pardoned, and covered over. How do they relate? The answer, I think, lies in the repetition of the word blessed. The word blessed is what ties this text together. Verse 6, right? David speaks of the blessings upon the man. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not reckon against him. And then look at verse 9. Is this blessing then upon the circumcision or upon the uncircumcision also? Paul's returning right back to Abraham's story again. He's talking all the way through here about 
Righteousness coming by faith. And he says it's a blessing. It's a blessing that is a two-part blessing. That's really what he's bringing out here. He's bringing out the two-part blessing. What am I talking about? The two-part blessing is, first, that our sin is pardoned. It's covered over. It's forgiven. Secondly, we are declared righteous. See, when our sin is covered over and forgiven, all you would return to is a neutral ground. That's not good enough. To come into the presence of a holy God, you must have real righteousness. True and positive righteousness. To enter into the presence of a holy God. And so what Paul is telling us here is that both happen when you believe. That when you exercise faith, your sin is pardoned, it is covered, it is forgiven. And you are reckoned righteous before God. How can our sin be covered? How can it be pardoned? How can it be that God does not reckon it against us? Chapter 3, verse 25. Because God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood the Lord Jesus Christ. It punished it on Him. The wrath was poured out on Him. The blessing of faith reckoned as righteousness includes the blessing of forgiveness for the ungodly. It is a twofold blessing, beloved. All of our sin counted against Christ and punished there. All of His righteousness attributed to us. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21? He made Him who knew no sin to be what? Sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is a twofold transaction. That leads me to the... Uh, the final point there in your handout, and that is I'm calling it the danger of a debtor's ethic. The danger of a debtor's ethic. See if I can kind of wrap this up for you. David, the great king here, says that a man is blessed or happy who experiences God's forgiveness and justifying grace. I can still remember that day in May, almost 30 years ago, when my chains fell off, my heart was set free. When I came to know the forgiveness of my sin and the justifying grace of Christ applied to my account, that I had been made right with my Creator. And I rose in love and followed Him. I was a changed man. You could talk to virtually anybody who had known me the day before and the day after. I was a changed man. I couldn't stop talking about Christ. But in those early years, something happened. I adopted what I call a debtor's ethic. A debtor's ethic. What I mean by that is there was just a real subtle desire to repay God for what He had done. I wanted to pay Him back. I mean, I knew I couldn't pay him back. I mean, I was not that far gone. But I wanted to pay him back. And so that subtle debtor's ethic began to show up in the various areas of my spiritual life. 
my Bible reading, my church attendance, my financial giving, my ministry involvements, even sharing my faith. It was all, I had this subtle motivation underneath it that, that I was going to pay, pay God back. Because after all, my reasoning went, if God had done so much for me, this is the least I could do for Him. What happened is the life began to get sucked out of my Christianity. My life began to become characterized more by duty than devotion. It was all about duty. It was all about what I needed to do. And my relationship with Christ began to grow colder. He began to become more distant to me. I still was reading my Bible and going to church and, and doing all the things, but the reason I was doing them was gradually and subtly shifting. It really wasn't until I began to learn, explore, and meditate upon the theologically rich doctrines of grace that I suddenly realized that God had justified me by grace through faith alone. That the righteousness of Christ had been imputed to me. That I stood before my Creator perfect, robed in the righteousness of Christ, and that there was nothing I could add to it and nothing I could do that would diminish from it. And I began to see the folly of the debtor's ethic. My passion for Christ was rekindled. It began to grow. Beloved, you can't repay Him. You can't repay Him. You can't even make a down payment. You can't make a dent. There's nothing you can give Him. Nothing. You were justified purely by grace. A gift, a favor of God given to you while you are ungodly. In fact, it insults the Spirit of grace to even think you can repay. Should a believer be involved in good works? Absolutely. Absolutely you should be involved in good works. But it is the motivation that's the issue. What motivates you to do what you do? Your spiritual life is cold this morning. Maybe there's been a growing frost accumulating on your walk with Christ. Not that you disbelieve anything. That's not what I'm talking about. It's just that Christ is not real to you. Not like He once was. The passion's not there. The, the love affair has grown cold. Meditate. Meditate on this truth. The incredible truth. That God justifies the ungodly when they simply embrace Him by faith. If you're with us this morning for the first time, we're glad you're here. Maybe you've heard some things that you've never heard before. Maybe you've got follow-up questions. You're, you're trying to process this. You feel like you've been in a 12-round fight, right? Your head's spinning. We have some folks that would love to minister to you. Maybe you've got a prayer need in your life, something that we can, can pray with you over, pray for. Maybe you just have questions about the church, maybe about baptism, or oh, how do I join? I've been coming a while, Pastor, and I really love to join, but I, I don't know how you do it. 
Oh, you pay you $10,000? No, I'm just, just teasing. I mean, but maybe you have questions, legitimate you know, questions. So over here by this lighted cross, there'll be some people that'll be just be pleased to minister to you, okay? There's a great room through that door. You gotta put a glass door on that or something so people could see. It's just a really great place to go and you can sit and be quiet if you want to pray by yourself or if you're looking for somebody to come alongside you. Okay, as, as we close, you, you come there and some folks will minister to you. All right, let me pray, beloved. Father, thank you that it is by grace alone that we have nothing else. It is all of your work, none of ours. You are the God who saves. And we are the recipients of that great salvation. Father, let our hearts just be overwhelmed with joy at what you have done. And let it motivate true worship, worship in spirit and in truth. May Jesus' name be glorified on our lips. Amen.